Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. In the early days of Xi Jinping's leadership, some China watchers regarded him as a potential reformer and noticed what they saw as his liberal tendencies. For example, Mr Xi gave a speech highlighting the importance of protecting people's rights. He promised to reduce the state's role in the business sector, pledged to liberalise the markets, and said he'd push for a more friendly relationship with other countries, especially democracies. In those days, and I'm talking about the few years after Xi Jinping took office in 2012, Hong Kong was low on the international agenda. People there were more or less left alone to manage their own affairs. It's a different story now. Following mass demonstrations involving millions of people, China introduced a sweeping national security law, and scores of people have been jailed for political reasons. When Xi Jinping went to Hong Kong in the summer of 2022, it was to stamp his authority on the city, which is now controlled by Beijing loyalists. Our guest on the podcast today lived in Hong Kong from 1992 to 2021. Mark Clifford is president of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong, and he has great prestige as a journalist, having been the editor of both the South China Morning Post and the Standard Newspapers. Mark, welcome to China in Context. Take us back to those early days of Xi Jinping's premiership. What was your view on him then, and how has it changed? When Xi Jinping came to power, there were many people who, who hoped, uh, as they always do when a new leader comes, that uh, he might bring in a fresh brush and have a, a reformist sense, um, particularly on the economy. I don't think there were many illusions he was going to open up the society, but I thought, I think that people hoped that the, uh, the state would pull back a bit and that, above all, he'd push forward economic reforms after a, a period of drift and indecision under his, uh, his predecessor, Hu Jintao. And I also think that uh, people hoped he would clean up the corruption, which was really posing an existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, he has done that. He's gone after a number of his, his political enemies, but he has moved backwards in terms of economic liberalization. The focus of our conversation today is Hong Kong. And in your book, Today, Hong Kong, tomorrow the world, you say that one of the most fervently held aspirations for many Hong Kongers was universal suffrage. That's the right of almost all adults to vote in political elections. You even say that people thought that if democracy flourished in Hong Kong, then people living in the rest of China would want to follow their example. Can you talk us through your view on that now? Well, first of all, the um, the dream of universal suffrage was um, well was a lot more than a dream. It was promised by the Chinese when they took over Hong Kong, which had been a British colony for 156 years until uh, the handover in 1997. Under the terms of the Sino-British Declaration, a, a, a UN registered treaty, Hong Kong was to move towards universal suffrage. It wasn't independence. It was very limited. It was really about electing a mayor and a city council. But that's what Hong Kong people wanted because they wanted the, they wanted to run their own affairs, as Beijing had promised they would be able to. Now, you're an American, and I met you in London at a meeting in the House of Commons to discuss Hong Kong. And some pretty stringent views were expressed during that meeting with some people calling for sanctions on China. 
But when you spoke, you were joined by two colleagues who are ethnically Hong Kong Chinese. And I mentioned that point because the Chinese Communist Party often says that the political protests which took place in Hong Kong in 2014 and 2019 were provoked by foreigners. It was the Westerners, they say, who stirred up the trouble. What's your response? I think that shows a fundamental misreading of Hong Kong people. There are seven and a half million people in Hong Kong. The overwhelming majority of them, over 90 percent, are are Chinese, almost all of them Cantonese Chinese from southern China. They've long been, of course, always been distant from Beijing and, and uh, the writ of the emperor of the Chinese Communist Party waxes and wanes. But Hong Kong people thought that they had the promise of a high degree of autonomy from Beijing. That's what they wanted. They wanted the right to continue the freedoms that they had uh, first developed as a British colony. And of course, they wanted the right to elect their mayor and their city council. The notion that foreigners were somehow involved in stirring this up or in, let alone in funding this is it's just laughable. And I think shows a real misunderstanding, a sad and tragic misunderstanding on the part of, of Beijing and the Chinese communist leaders. Your book details the implications of the national security law, which was introduced in Hong Kong in 2020. And reading your reports on this, the thing that really shocked me was the way in which that law has been applied so arbitrarily. Yeah, uh, I think the national security law is just a fundamental transformation of Hong Kong, and it really was the end of freedom in this city. It essentially outlaws free thought, any kind of dissent. It's, a, it's sort of as if Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland uh, met George Orwell's 1984. I mean, it's it's kind of surreal the way that people are just dragged off sometimes in the middle of the night for the pettiest of offenses. I mean, people have been arrested for holding up blank pieces of paper. Uh, a, a group of speech therapists has been cooling their heels in jail for more than a year because they came up with a children's book that had sheep and wolves and the government felt that this was inciting hatred against the government. And, you know, forget about all the promises Beijing made before the um, the takeover from Britain. They promised free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of press. It's all out the window. I was um, on the board of directors of a company that published Apple Daily, the main pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong. We had 550 armed police march into the newsroom and march out the chief executive officer the editor-in-chief, by the time the dust settled, I had seven, and I have, seven colleagues in jail. Only one of them has even been tried. The other six are being held under the national security law without bail, which is against international law, and again, against the mini-constitution that, that governs Hong Kong, being held without bail, even though they've offered to plead guilty, they just want to be sentenced and get on with their lives, the government's essentially holding them hostage. We've talked a lot about the national security law at the SOAS China Institute, and the view of the director, Professor Sang, who's from Hong Kong, is that it's not actually related to national security, and it's not actually a singular law. It's a package of uh, actions on behalf of the uh, Chinese authorities. But the thing that raises particular concern is that it could be applied or seen to be applied internationally, which could put students of uh, 
China at risk, even if they're in the United States or in London. The extraterritorial provision, the long global reach of the national security law is, is very concerning. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Benedict Rogers uh, at Hong Kong Watch, runs a London-based international NGO, and yet he has received threatening letters from the Hong Kong police telling him that if he doesn't take down his website, that he could be subject to prosecution under the national security law. Think of this, a British citizen in London running a London website for a London NGO is being threatened by the Hong Kong police because they don't like what he's saying. It's outrageous. Now, some companies which operate in Hong Kong, such as HSBC, have told investors that they've got no alternative. They absolutely have to abide by the local law. Yet in your book, you draw a dramatic parallel, actually, with IBM, the US company, which followed laws which were laid down by Hitler's Third Reich. It sounds like a fairly provocative comparison. What led you to make it? It is a deliberately provocative comparison because although all companies need to uh, be mindful of the local environment and the local laws and regulations where they work, there comes a time when enough is enough. And I think uh, in HSBC's case, it ha it's in a very unfortunate position. It's a British domiciled bank that makes most of its profits from Hong Kong and China. At some point, HSBC is going to have to decide enough is enough and that it can't be part of this murderous regime anymore. The Chinese Communist Party has interned something on the order of a million or more ethnic Uyghurs in Western China. It's the largest civilian internment that we've seen since the Nazis. And just as IBM was held to account for helping develop the punch cars and, and the technology for Hitler to uh, take censuses that allowed him to uh, round up and exterminate Jews, I'm afraid that HSBC is, if it doesn't act quickly, going to be held to account by history for the role it's played in enabling uh, just brutal policies by the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong and elsewhere. So has Hong Kong lost its allure as Asia's financial hub? Is all the money and talent going to Singapore? I think that uh, a lot of uh, financial services firms are moving to Singapore, but um, to be honest, once there's a financial center that's established, it's very hard to dislodge it. So it's still Hong Kong's to lose, particularly because of the role that Hong Kong plays in capital raising for, for mainland Chinese companies. I want to go back to the title of your book, Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World. China surely can't have as much influence on foreign countries than it does in its own special administrative region. So why do you say that Hong Kong is a chilling preview as to what might happen in other parts of the world? Hong Kong is the only place in modern history where there's been a free, open, prosperous city that almost overnight, in the space of just a couple of years, has seen its freedoms systematically destroyed. And sadly, we're seeing signs of that in other open societies where China, the Chinese Communist Party, working with local allies in the so-called United Front, which is the above ground arm of the Chinese Communist Party, are working to circumscribe to limit debate, whether it's in classrooms, in the media, in, in politics. So in Australia, 
China has tried to to limit um, questioning in Australia into its role in in the COVID outbreak and cut off exports, trying to use economic coercion by not buying Australian goods in order to influence and, and affect domestic politics. In Lithuania, it cut off imports completely from Lithuania. It X'd the country out of its list of importers uh, because it wasn't happy about uh, Lithuania's contacts with Taiwan. We've seen similar incidents in Sweden, even in, in Britain, in, in Scotland, and in England. I've talked to activists who have been bullied, harassed, sometimes even beaten by mainland communist Chinese um, people. So I, I think that we're very naive if we think that uh, Hong Kong is somehow unique in its uh, in, in suffering at the hands of Beijing, because um, as we discussed earlier, the national security law is applicable worldwide. The Chinese have been, have made no secret of their um, desire to to bring people back to China. In some cases, kidnapping them even when they uh, when they don't like their political views. So what we're seeing in Hong Kong in the destruction of a free and open city is, uh, as I said, you know, unfortunately, a chilling uh, preview of what other places are starting to see as well. So given all that's taken place in Hong Kong in the past several years, what are your hopes for the city now? Can your Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong deliver freedom for its citizens? Well, the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong can't uh, deliver freedom for the people of Hong Kong. That's really for them. What we can do is to keep the spotlight on Hong Kong through um, media, through interactions with politicians, through uh, uh, pressure from abroad to ensure that people who are unjustly treated in Hong Kong are not forgotten, that their conditions hopefully are ameliorated. We're particularly concerned with the political prisoners in Hong Kong. I mentioned to you earlier my seven colleagues from Apple Daily who are in prison unjustly, uh, but there are scores of other people being held without trial, and, and we want to make sure that they're not forgotten. We want to shine a spotlight on the egregious human rights abuses perpetrated every day by the Chinese Communist Party and its enablers in Hong Kong. So we're, we're working uh, with legislators to impose additional sanctions on the prosecutors and the judges who are um, railroading people through these, these kangaroo courts for in the national security law cases. But ultimately, change will have to come from within Hong Kong and above all, from within China. Well, we'll certainly welcome conversations with people from Hong Kong on this podcast and at the university. That was Mark Clifford, author of Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, published by the History Press. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.